Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, as we finish out this week, we are rewinding back to October the 10th, 2017. Like I said, each rewind in this series goes back one more year and sticks to the relative time period being October, September of when the original episode went out. This was episode 2096. It was called Decision Making with Logic and Reason. I picked this one for a variety of reasons. One reason I picked is like, this is a topic that we should always be real, w willing to look at again because it, the need for this type of show, the need for this type of thought-based system is only increasing over time because all of the problems in it uh, are worse today than they were back then. And, and that means there's, there's two ways this works out. If you were around so long as to have been here in October of 2017 when I first did this episode, and you, you listened to this episode, you've either been practicing this, this mindset in those, what, five years now, or you haven't. And that either means that you have further liberated your mind or your mind has been further enslaved. I talk about this all the time in a variety of ways, but there's no sliding scale in life. Since everything in life is moving against you, you can't be static You either have to be on sort of the offense mentally, on the offense from a standpoint of your, building your wealth, your freedom, your resiliency, your non-brittleness, or life is making you more non-brittle and more, more of a conformist and removing your liberty. That's how it works. It's an active system grinding against you. And nothing is more true in that realm than the, 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 the ongoing pursuit of control of the human mind. Here's a fact, whether you like this or not. It won't change that is indeed fact. The American people will have been systematically programmed to be unable to make rational and logical decisions over many generations. This is systematic and it is intentional. Here's the key tendons that you can contribute this to. There's just two of them. First is the state education system. It is the case that children are taught to learn a thing, repeat a thing, and defend a thing, but never to determine a thing. Every concept in our education system is based on a single correct answer. The student never determines anything for themselves. Then you turn to industry and media. Well, marketing itself is telling a story and not much more. That's my absolute definition of marketing, telling your story. But modern marketing has become the epitome of a dichotomy. Everything is boiled down to an A versus B choice. This is done in direct marketing, online entertainment, etc., but certainly when it comes to the quest for control of the human mind. There is no place, for instance, for thoughtful consideration of something like global warming, climate change, climate weirding, call it whatever you want to. It is not okay to be like, I think there's a problem and there's things that we can do, but it's not all in on this 100% CO2 reduction through taxation scheme. Well, then you're just a climate denier. There's no, there's no place in a dichotomy for nuance. Nuance has been eradicated from the capability of the average American, in fact, the average Westerner today. In fact, the average person in the world today, third world, first world, developing world, all of it, second world, all of it. It's, it, it is the system that governments use. And they continue 
to use it, and they continue to refine it. Here's the thing about marketing people don't understand. If you've never been a marketer as a professional, the longer I run a marketing campaign, the better I get. Because the more data I have and the more I can adjust. Here's a simple example. Split testing is something we used to do a lot for our clients back when I was in that business. And that is simply we run two creatives, two forms of advertising, two forms of marketing collateral, whatever it is. And we simply take primary metric or metrics and we say, did A or B perform better? Well, A performed better. Okay, what was the primary difference in A and B? It was very subtle, by the way. Okay, so now we're going we're to we're get rid of B and we're going to get C. C is going to slightly enhance the reason we think A did better, and we run it for a period of time. Does C perform better? If it does, we know we're on the right track. So then we get rid of A and we go to D. And we go, why do we think, why do we, think we were successful with C? And we, we do D, and we, we make some enhancements, and it doesn't do better. Okay, we were wrong. Well, should we just stick with C? Maybe. Let's try a little bit. Let, let's, let's play with it a little bit more. E, we roll out E. E does better. Ah, now we kill. And then over time we start to realize, well, can we look at the demographics? Well, A, which initially lost, actually played better with male seniors. So let's put this piece of collateral into the market demographic where we can reach males over 65. And B, even though it beat A and then lost to C, B did really good with women in their 20s. Well, let's put, and this is how marketing is dialed in. And you think they send the same message everywhere. They do not. They absolutely do not. They send the message that gets the desired result into where they can control the demographics most accurately. Why do you think Mark Zuckerberg is worth so much money? Do you think it's because Facebook's really cool? No, it's because they know they can advertise to the person that really is interested in getting concert tickets to 70s, uh, 70s rock bands that are doing reunion tours. They absolutely know 100% that that's who they're advertising to. Okay, this is how government has been marketed. This is how decision-making has been marketed. What can we do to make sure that every venue that we're putting information out through reaches its demographic with the most desired result. And that desired result is not to make them believe A or B, but to believe that only A or B is an acceptable answer. And that once you take a position, you must defend that position vehemently, and anybody that takes the opposite position is the enemy. That is the goal of all the marketing. And hence, there can be no room for nuance, and there is no way that the average person in America today can make a decision with logic and reason. The first thing they want to know, well, what does my side think? You've just denied logic and reason. What your side think doesn't matter. Why do you have a side? This is an issue. We're going to go through a very rational way to make decisions today. The questions to ask ourselves. To determine, first of all, does this thing even qualify for my time? I was told by the TV people I'm supposed to be upset about this. This is the thing, the current thing that I'm supposed to be outraged about. Does it even apply to me? Do I care? Can I do anything about it? Does it matter? Where do the, who, who, who benefits from this? Who benefits from either side of this? And in what way and how? What are the problems, the needs, the wants? What happens to it if we don't do anything? What if we just leave it alone? Maybe we don't have to do anything at all. Basic common sense things. In other words, the way that, that problem solving and determining what side of an issue you stand on should be taught in our education system if indeed our education system was designed to serve our youth and make them into thoughtful, 
adults with the capability to use nuance in using grammar rhetoric, grammar rhetoric and logic. So the fact that it's not done tells you all you need to know. But it doesn't tell you how to overcome it. That's what this episode is all about. Again, it's from 2017. And this is one of those episodes I love playing for people who say, man, you've changed. Really? Because this is five years ago. And it sounds like it could have been, well, about five minutes ago. Let's rewind now. Back to October the 10th, 2017, episode 2096, Decision Making with Logic and Reason. Into the main topic of today's show, which again is making rational, logical decisions. Which, if you're going to buy the, the Quail Tracker or participate in Crypto Gulch, I want you to use everything that I teach you today, which will, res and this is the important part, it will result in many of you going, wow, this isn't for me. That's how you know we're freaking honest about what we do. We want people to work with us that are a good fit for what we do in any of the ventures that we go forward with. That makes you less in the short term, but it gives you better trust, faith, and longevity in the long term. And that's what's really important building a business. All right? So, going into today's topic, here's what I want to lead off with. Here's a fact. And whether you like it or not, it won't change the fact that this is indeed a fact. Okay? The American people have been systematically programmed to be unable to make rational, logical decisions over many generations. I believe that is a fact. I will, I will stipulate that in reality it is my opinion. But it is my opinion based on so many facts that I feel it is a very factual opinion. Okay? Because, I mean, I can't make definitive statements without concrete proof and do today's show without sounding like an ass card. All right? So I will say it is my opinion, yet it is my opinion based on a lot of facts. And I believe there's two key tenets to this. And it doesn't necessarily have to be by design. On some levels, I believe it is by design. On some levels, I believe it is because these are the systems we've chosen. This is the natural result. But then as that result begins to come in, the people in power comprehend it and run with it. And we have these two main tenets. And the one is the state. And when I say the state, I mean the state slash the education system. Because it is the education system by which this entire thing is delivered to people from a very, very young age. And again, some of this is by happenstance. It's not all, you know, it's not like it's a vast conspiracy of like 20 guys meeting in a room that are the New World Order for the 1800s going, how do we do this excellent like Mr. Burns? Some levels of making the decision to have the type of education system that we have today led to this being inevitable. But then again, I feel the people in power went, oh, this is what we have now. Here's how we use it to our advantage. Because that's what people in power do. The problem we have with the modern education system is that children are taught to learn a thing, repeat a thing, and defend a thing, but never to determine a thing. Every concept in our education system is based on a single correct answer, and the student never determines anything for themselves. Now, I understand some of this is inevitable, and some of this is, in fact, necessary. I can't teach you that 2 plus 2 is 4, but maybe it's not. 
Right? If I want you to understand basic mathematics, and I understand the theoretical concepts and all where 2 plus 2 may not always be 4, but in the general concrete world of mathematics, it is important that a child learn 2 and 2 equals 4 things. If I have 2 things and 2 other things and I put them together, now I have 4 things. And if I have 2 things and take away 2 of those things and they go somewhere else, now I'm left with 2 things. That's, that's okay. And that leads to a textbook blueprint for how we're going to teach. Water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees centigrade. If I ask you the boiling point of water, you need to know that number for you to have mastered the concept of when water boils based on the way that we measure it. Okay, So I, I'm not in of itself criticizing that. I'm saying that we have created a system where that is so boilerplate to everything that we teach that we never sent a child out on a journey of true discovery. And even when we give ourselves the illusion that we've done, like the report, right? So we'll say, well, you have a, a major report due the second semester of the year, okay? And it'll be in science class. And they might say, you have to do your report, let's say, Johnny, you must do your report on photosynthesis, or they might say you can do anything in the realm of physical science or whatever it is. But in the end, the methodology by which they teach a child to do this report involves now going on the Internet, when I was a kid, going to the library, looking shit up in encyclopedias, and basically gathering information, assembling that information, and presenting that information as an assemblage of known information. And it's closer to a discovery. It's also four, three or four percent of what students do. Okay. But it's still not really a journey of discovery. Because it never even started out with the concept of Johnny, what do you want to know? See, for it to truly be a journey of discovery, it would have to begin with Johnny, what do you want to know? So we never have children or students, when they get older, I don't know you know, how long you call a child a child. Are they a child when they're 16? Are they a child when they're 18 in high school? Are they a child when they're 19 in college? We don't have students go off on a journey of true discovery. Because we can teach a child English and math and science using any subject of discovery that they choose to go off on. But we don't. Because it's very hard to institutionalize and systematize that. It's much more of a, a self-directed learning which doesn't fit the agenda. So by the very nature of the method by which we teach, children are taught there's a right and wrong answer to every question and that the answer has been determined by people in authority that you must submit to. Okay. Then the second component to this is the industry and media. So media really is part of industry. So Fox News is an industrial company, but I, I put a slash in the notes so that we could make a distinction that we do include media. We're not just talking about people that build things and make tires and rims and cars, right, and factories. Industry as a whole. Industry is all about marketing. And you have to understand what marketing really is. Marketing in of itself is not something evil. It's like a gun. It's how do we use it. Marketing is simply telling a story. That's all marketing really is. You'll like the quail tracker because it lets you raise quail. Here's how. Right? That's marketing. 
But what we have with modern marketing is the epitome of dichotomy. Everything's boiled down to A versus B, and this is done with direct marketing, online, and entertainment, etc. You need this because, or you're a dummy. That's like the summation of modern marketing. Like, you're an idiot if you don't have this, or you're not cool if you don't have this. You're not with the in crowd if you don't have this. Your old thing that I don't even know about sucks, and you need this to replace it. This is how marketing and sales are accomplished, but it's not just marketing and sales of things that you would buy. It's marketing and sales of political opinion. So we have told you that Kim Jong Ding Dong in North Korea is a crazy madman that wants to unleash an EMP on America to shut down our electric grid and kill everybody, and you need to believe that because we told you, or you're a dummy. Right? That, I mean, that's that's everything that they do is presented in this dichotomic way. I mean, the, the, the I mean, one of the most obvious uses of the dichotomy was back in the '80s. If you're old enough to remember this, the Pepsi Challenge. We went out in the streets to determine if Coca-Cola really was America's favorite soft drink. So we took Coca-Cola drinkers, and we gave them an ounce of Pepsi and an ounce of Coke, and we had them try it, and here's the results. I like the Pepsi better. Pepsi's better. Yay! Well, aren't there a lot of things you can drink other than the watered-down corn syrup fizzly crap that is Pepsi or Coke? Like water and tea and beer and I mean, I don't know, right? Like, but we, what they did was they they boiled it down to this simplistic thing, and that's how they've done everything, from politics to education to entertainment. It doesn't matter what it is; it's been boiled down in a dichotomic view. And long-term listeners should be on full permaculture-style pattern recognition right now. Like your pattern recognition alert should be like <laughs> industry and government working together. Mental computer goes off. Fascism, neo-fascism. Now, if you're new and you hear neo-fascism, you might be like, "Oh, he's talking about Nazis. There's neo-Nazis in America." Listen, you got to give me time to make my case to you so you can evaluate it and make an informed decision about it. Okay. If you're new to TSP, understand that neo-fascism has nothing to do with neo-Nazism. Zero. No, that's old neo-fascism, and hence is no longer neo. You see, my friends, to understand a word, you must define it. And most people that run around flipping out the term neo-anything, neo-conservatism, neo-this, neo-Nazi, neo, don't know. If you, okay, stop, stop. What does the what does the prefix neo mean? What does it mean by itself, apart from whatever word you're appending it to? Because you can't know what you're doing when you create a word like neo-fascism if you don't know what the prefix neo means. Neo means a combining of form meaning new, recent, revived, modified, used in the formation of compound words. That's not my opinion. That is legitimate fact, right? That is a fact. Neo, when we use it in a term like neo-fascist or neoconservative, really means new, revived, modified, fill in the blank. So I'm just going to say World War II ended 72 years ago. 
So there's nothing new about Hitler's fascism. No, today's new fascism is right here in America. Fascism is a form of government where industry and government work together and see them as, quote, these are more facts when I give you the quotes here, mediators between the classes. That's a hallmark of fascism. And feel that, quote, the difference between the classes are to be used to an advantage, that's another fact, in, quote, achieving the goals of both the state and industry. This is fascism at its core. All of the other types of things that you've been told about fascism were in their day the neo-fascism of the day. Franco's fascism in Spain was dramatically different and modified from the fascism in Germany of Hitler. Hence, Mussolini also had his own version of fascism. And you can make something quite evil like fascism look very, you know, velvet-lined glove, velvet lining on the outside, but it's still got a steel core to punch you in the face on the inside. So, you know, we don't need to go deep into this today, but our new fascism we have is we have the largest per capita prison population on the planet, but no concentration camps. We're the freest nation in the world, but we put more people in prison than any other nation. We put more people in prison per capita than China. We put more people in prison per capita than North Korea. But we're the freest nation in the world. The old fascists. And we have an oligarchy standing in for a totalitarian dictator. So instead of a Hitler, we have a totalitarianism that is based on industry controlling government versus government controlling industry in the fascism that you learn about in school. We call it crony capitalism, but what it really is, modern neo-fascism. Very well-tuned machine of neo-fascism. And with such a system, it's inevitable that all decision-making will end up dubbed down to a dichotomy where the side you are on is right, and the side you're not on is always wrong in how you think. Such a people can't be expected to form original opinions, and frankly, for those in charge, such a thing is undesirable. That's where we're at today. So, let's start out with, what is a dichotomy versus a false dichotomy? Well, I mean, because the dichotomy in of itself is not an inappropriate word, And it's not an inappropriate word that can be used to describe something in situations. A dichotomy, to use an extreme example, to prevent any wiggling away from it, because what I'm going to, everything I'm going to teach today after this is going to be how to wiggle away from a dichotomy. To, to get to a point where you can say, well, that's not exactly the only two choices we have here. Right? Because then you're thinking. But I'm going to give you one that's pretty much inevitable to be a dichotomy. There are ten men with rifles pointed at your chest, and some evil emperor in some fictitious land has ordered your execution. You are to be given the choice to be executed by being shot, or you're standing at the edge of a cliff, you are free to leap to your death. The cliff is 2,000 feet tall, there's no way you're going to survive leaping, and if you do, they're going to drag you back up there and make you make the decision again, like Homer Simpson on a skateboard. You're going to, and you cannot charge. There's 10 people with guns trained on you. They all will shoot you. That's a dichotomy. You have two choices. You get to jump off the cliff or you get to get shot. Either way, you're going to die. There's no option C. That's a true dichotomy. 
That's a true dichotomy. Another dichotomy that's actually, I think, a legitimate dichotomy is your choice to believe or not believe in God. There's not really a third option. As a deist, I would pr pr promote that my option kind of is a third option, but it really isn't. You either believe in some level of intelligence beyond what we understand, or you do not. You have to either decide that the universe was created by accident, or that some intelligence designed it. That life arose from a random happenstance of organic molecules and natural forces. There was no life one day, and the next second, life popped into being and then evolved into everything that we know. Or some intelligent force with some intention of some kind caused that to occur. There's really not a third option there. Now, there's different versions of atheism, theism, and deism, but either there is or there isn't. That's a dichotomy. Now, if you can wiggle out of that one, good. Good. Because coming up with a third option there is quite difficult. Those are dichotomies. Those are dichotomies. Now, when we look at the world, most of the things presented to us to, as, as dichotomies are not dichotomies. You have to vote for the Republican or the Democrat. And if you vote for the Libertarian, you're wasting your vote. Right? So it's, it's, you have to do A or B. Wait a minute. First of all, I, I, I still can vote for the Libertarian. You're wasting your vote. doesn't matter. I don't have to do this. I don't have to vote. I don't have to vote on all this shit. I might only vote on certain shit at certain times. I don't have to do anything. And we'll start examining some questions we should be asking. It'll make you, help you make that decision for yourself. I'm not telling you what to do here. I'm not placing judgments on it. I'm saying that's how you're presented the issue. These people, I won't even give an example. Because then it will, it will lead you to start trying to defend whatever position you've already taken through confirmation and perception bias. So, without naming this group of people, this group of people are bad. So either they are bad or they aren't bad. Well, that's not how that works. That group, how big is it? So some of them might be bad. And what are we defining as bad? Is there anything we can do about that? Maybe there's nothing we can do. Will what we do make it worse if we think we have to just because they're bad? But that's not how that is ever presented. You must choose a side. We are the side of right. If you're opposed to us, bad. That is, that is a false dichotomy. That is a false dichotomy. You either have to go to college or you have to have a less fulfilling life. That is a false dichotomy. It is quite possible that the wise person could structure their own independent training or investment or whatever it is in such a way that the average person, if they chose not to go to college, could actually live a far more fulfilling and wealthy life than people that do go to college. A true dichotomy would be, if you want to be a doctor, you got to go to college, because that's the path that's available. If you mean MD in the modern sense, and you want to practice medicine and have the privileges that come with the license of being an MD, then, then, then you're down to a dichotomy. But unless you're down to that, most other things that you might want to accomplish, you don't need college for. College might make it easier, or it might even make it harder. It all depends on how you approach the situation. But what it requires is a thoughtful analysis. 
rather than a decision based on two things being A or B. And that's the difference between false dichotomy and true dichotomy. So let's start talking about some questions to ask about any problem or issue. If I could get people to ask the first four questions I'm going to give to you today and nothing more, if I could get the average person to always ask, in fact, I would say the first three questions, just ask those. First of all, I think a lot of the other things I'm going to say would happen just by logic and reason would lead to these other things if we started there. But if I could just get people, like the majority of people in the country, to always ask themselves these three questions, the entire world would change. Without telling anybody what to think or do, and without any expectation of what conclusions they would have, they may have dramatically different conclusions than my own, but we'd have people going out and doing good things instead of being controlled. So the first question would be, is this really important to me, and if so, why? Because so many people are convinced that something's important to them, but they've never asked, answered the second part of the question. If so, why? Why is this important to me? Is it just because I'm outraged? Is it just because I'm outraged? Because we'll give up, and this, again, I'm going to challenge you to not go into defensive mode today. There's a lot of people a couple weeks ago before this whole Vegas shooting happened that it was really important to them that football players stand during the national anthem. Why? Because you're disrespecting soldiers. Hold on. And most of the people saying that were not soldiers. I was a soldier. I have never felt disrespected by someone choosing to exercise the freedoms of choice that I swore to uphold and defend even when I totally disagreed with what they were doing. And I won't even state whether I agree or disagree with them right now because I want to remain absent from that in your mind. Why is it important to you? If it's only because emotion, if it doesn't actually hurt or harm or break or do anything in any way that actually affects your life, or as I like to say, does it affect the temperature of the water in your pool, then you're choosing to be outraged. You can be outraged by things that actually affect you. You can be outraged by things that don't affect you, but they really do hurt somebody, and therefore you have some sort of justifiable outrage. But if you're outraged because you're offended, you are on the road to being controlled by somebody else. Because what happens when you're offended is really nothing. As that famous famous comedian says, you know what happens when you're offended? Nothing. In fact, let me play him right now for you. I'll play this little two-minute outtake, and I'll come back, and we'll keep going through this. Because it's important that we don't get stuck on being offended as being important, because it's not. Here you go. And then we have political correctness, which is, which is the joy that is the other side of health and safety, which is health and safety, which is a small oppression of our physical movement, so we can't do anything without permission from the state. And political correctness is the oppression of our intellectual movement, so no one says anything anymore in case somebody else gets offended. <laughs> what happens if you say that and someone gets offended? Well, they can be offended. <laughs> What's wrong with being offended? When did sticks and stones may break my bones stop being relevant? <laughs> Isn't that what you teach children, for God's sake? That's what you teach toddlers. He called me an idiot. Don't worry about him. He's a dick. 
Now you have adults going, I was offended, I was offended, and I have rights. <laughs> well, so what? Be offended. Nothing happens. <laughs> You're an adult. Grow up. Deal with it. I was offended. I don't care. Nothing happens when you're offended. There's nothing. I, I went to the comedy show and, and the comedian said something about the Lord and, and I was offended. And when I woke up in the morning, I had leprosy. <laughs> nothing happens. I want to live in democracy, but I never want to be offended again. Well, you're an idiot. law about offending people? How do you make it an offence to offend people? Being offended is subjective. That has everything to do with you as an individual or a collective or a group or a society or a community, your moral conditioning, your religious beliefs. What offends me may not offend you. And you want to make laws about this? I'm offended when I see boy bands, for God's sake. <laughs> it's a valid offence. I'm offended. They're corporate shills posing as musicians to further a modelling career. And frankly, I'm disgusted. Right? <laughs> But what am I going to do? Call the cops? Hello, it's me again. <laughs> They're on the telly this time. <laughs> Five of them, that's it. <laughs> yeah, white suits, dancing like girls, that's them. <laughs> Five minutes, I'll be out the front traumatized. Bye. <laughs> All right, and so I come back, I kind of want to stay off the specific issues because the problem with the specific issue in this case, standing for the anthem football player, is topical and timely and makes a good point. But if you're entrenched on that issue, you're probably not very open to discovering anything through examination of it. So if that's you, replace it with a different issue right now that you find absurd that somebody's that upset about. And, and examine that particular issue. But, but the, what, I'm, what I'm saying here is that something's important to you only because you're offended, but no one was shot or beaten or stabbed or had their rights violated, then you're being emotionally led instead of logically led. And that's not always bad, but it often is, okay, is the way to look at that. The next one is, After you've answered if it's really important to you, and if so, why? Because if you, let's start with that. Let's say if you go, you know what? When I really look at this particular issue, it's not really important to me because I don't have a why. And since I've figured out it's not important, I'm going to stop looking for one. We can stop and put that issue to bed. We just, I, that's not, I don't have time for it. But assuming you've answered that question with it is important to me and this is why, the next thing you should ask yourself is, How did this come to my attention? How did this come to my attention? In fact, that might actually be the better first question. I think people don't even think about where this thing showed up from. Did the TV tell you? Did your friend tell you? Did the screen that you carry around in the form of a phone with a Facebook post tell you? Where did this come from? And what you need to be thinking that's additional to this question is, Did, did I have any concern about this until somebody told me? Because sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes it's still important. For instance, maybe you weren't concerned that your house was on fire. But when the smoke alarm goes off and starts beeping, because there's smoke and possibly fire, now you need to be concerned because the house you know, might burn down around you. But there's a lot of issues that tie people's mental capacity up that... They never really cared until someone told them that they were supposed to care. 
And again, that doesn't mean you shouldn't, but it does mean you should say, wait a minute, if this wasn't important yesterday, and I wasn't involved with it yesterday, and I didn't have an opinion on it yesterday, or I didn't give a shit about it yesterday, I didn't care about it, what's different today that I should now? And that is best answered by looking at where to come from. Did you go out and find this information? There's a good chance it matters to you then. But if this information was pushed into your realm of knowledge, there's a good chance that whoever pushed it there wants a reaction from you. And there's no reason to believe that the action, reaction that they're seeking is to your benefit. Next question. What is the source of my knowledge? Or, I'm sorry. Can I actually make any meaningful action as to this issue? And if so, what? In other words, you, you've determined that it's important to you, and you know why it's important to you. You know how it came to your attention, and you've realized even if it came to your attention because someone has an agenda, it still merits your consideration. But now you're going to say, well, is there actually anything I can do about this that will actually do anything? Because if the answer is no, if the answer is no, and I know somebody would... The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. I didn't say you should always do nothing. I asked a question. Is there anything you can do that will create any meaningful action in this area? Because if your only thing that you can do is be angry and post memes and yell and scream about it and tell other people they're wrong, the answer to that question is no. If it's upsetting to you, It's okay for it to be upsetting to you. I'm not telling you to be a Vulcan and bury your emotions and pretend it's not upsetting to you. But if you also determine, in addition to being upsetting to you, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to change it. There's nothing you can do to influence it. There's no way that you can even defend yourself. Like, it's something that upsets you, but it's never actually going to hurt you or take away something from you. And there's nothing you really can do that will matter. Every freaking bit of energy you spend on it from that point forward is wasted when it's not being applied to something that you could make a difference on, whether it's for somebody else or for yourself. Because you can't do two things like this at the same time. The, one of the biggest ways that they control us is this fact. The American people cannot be truly pissed off and motivated to action about more than one thing at one time. Because that's why you had a week of nothing mattering except the Vegas shooting. That's why the week before that, the only thing that mattered in mass was a debate about the National Anthem. And that's why next week there'll be something new that will dominate everything. And that's true at the macro level, and it's true down at your level at the micro level. If you're actually going to take action, you can only take meaningful action on one, maybe two things at the same time. So when you're, when you're tying up your thought process, your anger, your resentment, whatever then you are taking away from what you have available to do about things you can actually affect. So you should shelve it at that point. I'm angry about it, I'm pissed off, but I have other things to take care of now. And if we can get people to ask those three, just that, it, it, with no prejudgment on what their answers are, if they would just demand of themselves, 
that they must ask whenever something comes up, whether it's a decision to buy a new bicycle or whether it's a decision to be upset about something the TV said, no matter what it is, in all decision-making process about what they're going to do or think or act on going forward, is this really important to me, and if so, why? How did this information even come to my attention, and can I actually take any meaningful action as to this issue? If so, what? We would transform the world, and that's why they will never teach those questions to your children in government school. So whether you're doing homeschool, unschool, government school, I don't care what it is, you need to teach your children those three questions to the point where it is a natural thing for them to ask them when anything comes into their life without telling them what to think or how to answer them, just to ask them. Because the mind will mature, the mind will develop, and the mind will find answers when questions are asked. And anything can become a habit. Any, good or bad, anything can become a habit. If you get up and do something that's not a habit right now, every morning you make a mental commitment, when I get up, I'm going to do this, whatever it is. You know, fill up a glass with water, drink two sips out of it, and dump it in the sink. I know it doesn't make any sense that you would do that. that does, there's no reason to do that. I'm making a point. If you do that for about a month... It will become a habit. You'll find yourself waking up and just doing it without even thinking about it. I can be good, and I can be bad. That habit could be when I wake up, I'm going to light a cigarette, whether I need one or not. And we know you don't need a cigarette, right? It could be when the day ends, I'm going to have a drink, whether you need one or not. We know you don't need a drink every day. Those can be bad habits. But we can also reinforce good habits so that they're done by almost instinctual levels. And if we start requiring of ourselves every time something, every time you say, well, I need to make a decision about this, or I'm upset about this, or I think we should do something about this, I'm going to sit down and make myself answer these three questions. What will happen is, after about a month of doing it, the second something comes up, your mind will go to those three questions. And you'll begin the process of actually making a decision for yourself instead of being handed to choices And the person handing you the choice is going to stack the deck so that you will make the choice that they most want you to take. That's what we have to ask how the information came to my attention. And that means we need to then, once we've done that, and we're trying to make that determination, assuming it's gotten past that. This is like the defense, right? Uh, you're, you're, you're actually more like your offensive line on your football team. If they slaughter the defensive line and your running back gets past them, he stops worrying about the, the, the defensive line. He's worried about people down the field now, right? So if we, if it gets past that, if it gets past that and it's still worthy of our attention at this point, now we have to ask ourselves about what our source of knowledge is on this issue. And as we ask that, we have to ask three key things about our sources of knowledge. Number one, do they have an agenda? And I think I'm going to change that in the notes right now. To what is their agenda? Because no matter who they are, they have an agenda. That doesn't, I see, that's the thing. We've, we've, we've destroyed the meaning of words. I think whenever you're answering a question that involves the use of a word, you should examine what the word means. I've told people, I've, I've told that to people like, do you want to argue about the definition of a word? Well, if we don't think it means the same thing, then we need to resolve what it does mean to both of us so we can choose the right words to actually discuss the issue. So I don't want to argue about the definition of words, but I want to make sure that we're on the same page. So an agenda, we have taken to mean something nefarious. If you have an agenda, it's bad. 
Well, when I woke up this morning, my first agenda was to put clothes on. That was an agenda. I, that wasn't a bad thing. Trust me, if I go out in public, you'd prefer that I wear clothes. You'll be much happier. So will I, because I won't go to jail for going out naked. Right? My next agenda became to let the ducks out, to take care of my dogs, to enjoy the 15 minutes of complete peace and quiet I get every day when Dorothy's gone to go pick the kids up and I'm here alone. I had a, see, that's, that's what agenda means. So your source could have a very benevolent agenda. Your source's agenda could be to report the facts. But if it's the modern media, you know there's a bigger agenda. So we have to say, what is this source's agenda? What do they, what do they hope to accomplish by providing this information or making this case? And again, that doesn't mean they're evil bastards, but it is a reasonable thing to ask. Okay, the next thing then would be, what is their track record? Does this source have a track record of being usually correct, incorrect, having hidden agendas, being nefarious, screwing people over, lying, telling the truth, being noble, being upfront, being honest, being consistently liberal, being consistently conservative, being consistently neutral, being consistently libertarian? Be See, it's not about a subjective judgment of that. It is, what is it? And generally, this isn't hard to figure out. And then the next one is, what do other sources say? When we look at our knowledge, and now we're making a determination about what to do based on our knowledge, or what to think, or how to feel, or, or what action to take, or what actions not to take, then that's what we need to ask about the source of the knowledge. Where do we get the source? You know, what, where do we get the, the information from? And what was that source's agenda? What is their track record in providing such information? And what do other sources say? Specifically, sources that disagree. Sources that, if you don't examine counter-arguments, then you are not fully informed on any decision. Because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. In the words of a, of a famous writer, it ain't what you don't know that hurts you, it's what you think you know that just ain't so. Right? Well, it's also what you don't know that you don't know. It's not just what you think you know. Because that can get you into some hot water. You think something's true, and it's not true. It can hurt you. But it's also true that when you don't know something and don't even know that you don't know it, you can make poor decisions. So you have to examine other sources, counter-arguments on an issue. And if, if it's made it this far, it's worth doing. If you haven't said, you know what, yeah, I'm upset about that, there's nothing I can do about it, or this is all bullshit, I don't care, or I don't need to buy this new thing, or this is so obvious, yes, I do, what have you, then you, if you get to that point where you're trying to still make a decision about your opinion, it's worthy of, 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 of examining other sources on the argument. Now, there's a point where you're done with that, and it amazes me how people can't accept that you're done with that. But if you only read this book by this guy, I've read lots of books by lots of guys on this subject, and I'm done with it. But no, you and they actually get offended, right? Like the comedian was on that, offended that you won't read their one guy or listen to their one thing or watch their one movie or whatever. Look, I've done this. I'm done. And that's because they're stuck in that dichotomic thinking. If I can only make this point, he'll agree with me. And, and generally, they don't even know what you think because they think you must believe the exact opposite There's no third or fourth or fifth option that you've probably taken if you've thought this hard about it.
So as we move forward, so we've now determined that it is important to us and why it's important. We've determined that we know the source of how it came to our attention. We actually can do something or think something that has some meaning in the world as to how we're going to live our lives or what we're going to do or how we're going to affect it. We know why, we know how we acquired our knowledge, from whom, what that individual's agenda was or what that group's agenda was. We know the track record of the primary place we obtained our initial knowledge and we've examined competing information. We've examined counter arguments and we now are at a point where we have looked at this issue to the point where, yeah, we need to figure out, like, what am I going to do? So the next question is simple. With all that behind you, is this something I want or that I need in my life or my business, etc.? Because remember, this is not just a political decision here. This could be, do I upgrade my software on my business to this new software? And think about it that way, because it's less polarizing, right? So, go through this again with the software thing. Is this really important to me? Like, was there anything wrong with the way my business was running up before I had this? Yes. Well, then, if there's if my business is running optimally, there's probably things for me to look at other than my customer service software. How did it even come to my attention? Some sales guy called me and told me I needed new software. Hmm... I don't know that I need new software. Or I had a whole shitload of problems because our software's not doing what I needed it to do. That came to my attention a totally different way. Ah, I think I'm going to proceed if that's what it is. Can I actually take any meaningful action as to this issue? If so, what? Of course I can. I can examine other software solutions and I can look at the consequences of making the, 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 the uh, choice to switch over, including retraining my people, how much it's going to cost me, and what it's likely to do better than what I have now. Or I can choose to, to try to fix what I already have, or I can choose to try to train my people to use what I have better, because maybe it's not a software problem, it's a user problem. But I have many meaningful actions I can take. Okay, what is the source of my knowledge on this issue? My people that bitch they don't like the software, are they using it as an excuse as to why they're not making their sales quotas? Or do they have a legitimate grief? The source is going to tell me what to look for, what questions that... See, the question leads to another question. The source is, the sales guy on the phone, I'm probably hanging up. What is the track record of this source? Are the people that are bringing me this information consistently solving these problems or consistently having these problems or consistently... Good in a, like if it's my employees, are they good at everything except the things that they need to use the software for? They show up on time. They always tell me the truth. They don't bullshit. I don't catch them screwing around on Facebook when they're supposed to be working. I go in and they're actually having problems with the software. Well, okay. If their track record is a bunch of screw ups, I need to replace them. I don't need to worry about the software. What do other sources say? So if I have some, like if I've gone down this path, And I'm considering adding, you know, switching over to the software. I want to talk to people that are using the software now. And I don't want the five that the salesman wants to give me that are his best friends that he takes to play golf. I want independent information. And then I'm, re see, since how logical this is, if I do all that with software, I'm really equipped at that point to say, is this something I want or need in my business? So why wouldn't you do that with something highly emotional like a political opinion as well? 
be logical about that which is otherwise emotional, and you might have more grounding, and you might come to the same conclusion that you already have. I'm not going to argue with you about that if you went through the process to get there. But if you've just snapped to a response, I'm going to challenge you to rethink it. Does that make sense? And do you understand why this is not being taught in schools? Do you just understand how dangerous these words are that I'm speaking? I know it just sounds like, oh, it's just like, you know, some kind of uh, lecture or something. No, do you understand how dangerous these concepts are? Do you understand how dangerous a, the millennial generation would be to the power elite if instead of not learning how to fix a cabinet, run a screwdriver, or a hammer, they instead of spending their time not learning those things, they had spent their time being taught to think the way that we are talking about today. Instead, the millennial generation is a tool of the power elite. Probably the best tool they've ever had. They're the most easily manipulated generation at all time. And I know some of you are part of it and you're angry with me right now. Don't be. I'm not saying every one of you. I only need to manipulate 51% of you to get what I want. You tell me that there's, there's, there's more than 51% of you who can think for yourselves independently. In any generation, let alone the millennial generation. My point here isn't to put you down. It's how dangerous would it be for the people in power if this was critical thinking taught to children in school? It is more dangerous than any revolution could ever be. Next. If this has never been an issue for me before, does it really matter now? Somehow this made it all the way through all of this analysis. But in the end, you're, you're, basically what you're doing now is you're checking yourself. Wait a minute. Did this salesman convince me of all this shit? Do I really need to do this? Do I really need to put my people through being retrained on a new software platform, or we just need to tweak and fix a few things with procedure? Have I been caught up in something and made emotional about it because we lost an account that's been blamed on a software glitch? That maybe was an account we were going to lose anyway. And if I remove that one aberration from the equation in the decision-making process, can I look at any other place this really has affected us? And oh boy, that applies to politics. But I'm sticking with the business decision because it's less emotional, isn't it? You're not upset. Some of you were upset when I brought up the NFL and the anthem and the, and the flag. And now you're not upset about this. It's the same analysis. I didn't tell you what to think when we talked about the other thing. I didn't tell you what decision to make. I told you what questions to ask yourself. Don't be pissed at me for that. A lot of times when you tell people, like, this is how you should analyze something, and they get angry, they start to realize what their answer will be, and they don't like the result because it's counter to what they believe intrinsically by emotion, not intuition, as our friend Einstein would say, but by emotion, and they end up with cognitive dissonance which is the mental discomfort of when new information doesn't match the paradigm you've latched onto. Which in some cases might be, our software is the best, or blind patriotism. Pattern recognition is the same process. So at this point in the process, we need to check ourselves. I've gotten this far, but man, wait a minute. Did I think I needed to do this or think this way last Thursday? If not, what really changed? Is it my perception or is it reality? You're checking yourself. If you don't check yourself multiple times when making a decision, you're going to make poor decisions. 
Sooner or later, emotion will get the best of you. Okay? And then we're going to move on to problems, needs, and wants. And we need to define what we're dealing with. Is it a problem, is it a need, or is it a want? Is it that I want this new fangled gadget because I like it? Is it that I want this new thing in my business because I just like the idea of it influencing my company's culture? Or do we need it? We're losing accounts. If we don't fix this hole, we're going to go out of business. Well, we need that. We need that. Problem is, I have this problem in my business. It is costing us accounts, but it's, it's not going to sink our company. There's ways around it and adapt to it, and I need to solve the problem from one medium or another. And when we break things down like that, we get a very clear picture of our action or our decision about what to think, depending on which one it's going to be. So some questions we ask within the realm of problems, needs, and wants are, what happens if we do nothing? A lot of times we get into a point where we've been convinced we have to do something. We have to do something. Think of the children, whatever, right? But, you know, you have to ask yourself, what would really go terribly wrong if we didn't do anything right now? Now, we can't use this as an excuse for paralysis when something needs to be done. But we should ask the question, like, if I don't do this three weeks from now, what will be the results of doing nothing? So that we can at least compare it to all the other choices, what we expect the results to be, based on solid knowledge and dissenting opinion, that we can actually make a legitimate comparison as to whether that something will even be an improvement. It might make things worse. The other thing is, do we already have something to deal with this? Is there some asset or some mechanism or some reality that already takes care of this issue? Again, I don't want to bring up specifics because it polarizes people. Just think of the concept. And think about asking this in every single place that you've been polarized to believe something or convinced that you need to buy something or told that you need to back something or told that you need to oppose something or told that you need to abstain for something or told that you need to participate. It doesn't matter what. Do we already have something to deal with this? Is there already an existing solution to this problem? And just because that solution failed in this instance doesn't mean that it doesn't generally work, and it doesn't mean that anything we do differently will be any better. So it pushes us back to what happens if we do nothing. But in this case, we might figure out that this existing asset is being improperly utilized. We need to hire someone to help us increase sales. Wait a minute, one of our greatest customer service people has a track record of upselling people without even knowing that's his job. Maybe we need to give him more of a sales responsibility instead of going out and hiring an unknown. That way, if that doesn't work out, he really doesn't move out of his position of customer service unless we decide he's better at what we have him doing now, and then we move him out. It's much easier to replace a CSR or customer service rep than it is a salesperson. So we're going to trial balloon this, give him some responsibilities, and if it looks like it's really going to take, we're going to make a transition for him. That would be an answer to, do we have something to deal with this already? Next, is it really a problem? Now, I know that sounds redundant, and it is because we are once again checking ourselves. You'll notice multiple points. We ask different questions that cut to the same heart of the issue. Is this really a problem? 
Is this really a problem? Back to the software issue. We lost an account. We're going to lose some accounts. Do we have a pattern of account loss? Was it our biggest account that we can specifically say is related to this thing that we think we're going to change to fix it? You can apply that to gun control. You can apply that to politics. You can apply that to economics. You can apply that anywhere. Is this really a problem? If we say yes, well, then we just go straight back to it. If we start to, if we start asking ourselves when we, when we, every time we do one of these checks on ourselves, well, I don't really know. Well, shit, if you don't know this deep into this process, if it really is a problem, it probably isn't. It probably isn't. I'll give you a business example of this. Back when I did uh, business consulting, and some of the things that we did with business consulting were things like search engine optimization and things like that. Uh, I go talk to this guy, and he's pissed. He's pissed. And he's pissed, and it's some weird search term with real estate. Like something no one would probably ever look for anyway. But he believes it's how people will find him online. Even though when I research it, there's like one person a month searching for it, and it's probably him because he's obsessed with this. When he runs this search on, at the time, MSN Search, which became Bing and was other, whatever, right? Microsoft Search Engine. The first person listed is a competing real estate guy that he hates, and he thinks this guy's an asshole. Okay? And he's absolutely livid that MSN Search has the audacity to put this guy there instead of him for that term. And he's not even on the page. Okay? This is not a problem. And that's what I had to tell the guy. First of all, you're looking at the least used search engine known to man. And one of the least searched terms known to man. And the fact that he's there has to do with the computer algorithm that going back to this decision-making process, you really can't do anything about. Now, we can, we can probably spend time and money and resources and push your website or a page of your website to where when somebody searches for this term on MSN Search, they'll find your page. And you know what will happen? That one guy that's you that's searching for that term will see it and feel better. But we haven't solved the problem. We've made a problem worse. You're, and I think maybe another way to look at it, is it really a problem? And if not, what is the real problem? The reason you have me here, the reason you have me here, is because you're not getting as much business as you think you should be getting in the current market. And this thing is not the reason for that problem. So spending any time, money, or resources on this thing will make the actual problem worse. Oh, my God, does that apply to the political theater and to the ass-clown circuses, right? It's And again, dangerous, dangerous teaching. You teach children this, and they become, by the time they're young adults, impossible to manipulate. Or I would say not impossible, highly difficult to manipulate. Highly difficult to manipulate. They're going to arrive at their own decisions if they think this way. The next one, is it a need or a want? And if it's only a want, how bad do I want it? It's another check question. I've gotten this far with it, and so now do I, I need to act or do I need to purchase or do I just want it? And if I want it, how bad do I want it and why? 
this is a this is a point where we want to gut check ourselves from a standpoint. Do I want this due to emotion? Do I want this because I think it's cool? Right? This is a good one for your kid when they want to buy something. You want to buy this because your friend has one? Does your friend let you use his all the time? Maybe you should buy something else. Let him use it because then you have both. Otherwise, you have two of something. You need two people to play with, and he's the only one that plays you with it. Plays with you with it. Things like that, right? But it applies to very big things as well. Do I want? And it could be an issue you're making a decision about where you stand on it, even though you can't change the issue. It's important to you where you stand on the issue. So if you figure out at this point where you've deluded yourself that I just want to believe this, you need to start all over again. You need to start all over again. Because I guarantee you, you've deceived yourself. And when you get to your final position, you won't be secure in it, and you'll still get angry when you're challenged. When you're secure in a position, you don't get angry when you're challenged. You get intellectual when you're challenged. Now, when somebody says something completely effing stupid, you might say, you know what, you're an idiot. And I'm not going to waste any time or energy. Or you're a troll. You're an idiot or a troll or an idiot troll, and I have no time for you. I'm not going to play the game of chess where the pigeon shits on the board and struts around like it won. I'm not doing that. I'm not wasting my time and energy. You can throw out all your troll hooks you want. I'm not biting. That happens. But when somebody makes a legitimate and somewhat in, you know, informed, or at least even if ill-informed, with belief that they've been informed, claim that's counter to your claim, you get intellectual. You have no problem refuting the central point from your position of knowledge and experience if you've gotten that far. And if you can't refute the central point, then you begin to descend in the hierarchy of disagreement and you end up places like ad hominem and name-calling. Or you end up at, in positions where you're not even rising to counter-argument. Instead of rising at least to counter-argument, what, what you do instead are things like respond to the tone. I don't like the way that you presented that. I can present factual information like a complete dick. right? And I can legitimately be an asshole when I do it. And when you attack the tone, it doesn't do anything to refute the central argument, which is, the, which is what you should be doing if you want to counter-argue. Right? You move from there to what's called contradiction. This is where someone at least... Because I'm telling you, name-calling, ad hominem, and responding to tone are the number one responses I see by both the left and the right with issues being debated online and offline. Contradiction is where people at least rise to the point of stating the opposing case, though they provide little or no supporting evidence for it. They just say, you're wrong because I think this. Okay, at least we've begun a discussion. Anything below that is not worthy of response. The next level is what we call counter-argument. This is when you contradict and then back up with reasoning and or some supporting evidence. When we come up from there, we get to refutation. Refutation is where, in addition to backing up with evidence, our counter-argument, we also find mistakes in the, in the, in the opposing opinion and explain why those are mistakes, using evidence, sources, quotes, etc. Here's your flawed logic, and I'm not just going to tell you you're wrong. I'm going to show you 
with factual information how you're wrong and why you're wrong and why I feel that my argument is better than yours. And then what you really want to... See, these are all levels like when you're dealing with opinions, refutation is about as high as you can go. That's the, that's, that's the, the highest level you can achieve when you're dealing with something that's an opinion. Does God, or not, does God exist or does God not exist? Regardless of what I believe, about the highest point we can go is to refutation in a, deb a debate. If you're an atheist and I'm a deist and I claim God exists and you claim God doesn't exist, we can only get to refutation. We cannot get to refuting the central point. Refuting the central point is reserved for facts. When one side can conclusively prove that what they're claiming is fact. If we were arguing about whether or not I have fish tanks in my office, if you were foolish enough to take that position, I could easily refute your central point by showing you the fish tanks in my office. Or if you claimed X number of people died in, in, in Y City last year from cause Z, and I could look up the fact that that is not true from, let's say, statistics from the, the, the Center for Disease Control, that that did not happen, and we have a record that we can examine, then I can refutate your central point. Or if I say you're wrong, that did not occur, and you can go out and prove conclusively with evidence, right, that proves your claim, then you can refutate my point that you're wrong. And only when we have sufficient evidence to draw a completely logical conclusion based on evidence that's so overwhelming that the fact is indeed a fact. We have moved from the world of theory to law. Gravity. You drop shit, it falls. You can tell me we don't know what gravity is. I'll agree with you, but you can't tell me that gravity doesn't make shit fall. And if you doubt me, I'll stand in front of you, I'll hold a 16-pound bowling ball over your foot, and I'll drop it, and we'll watch gravity work together. And you will become a believer about the time that that ball tries to occupy the same space as your foot, which is a physical impossibility, and there has to be a reaction. And it's going to be you leaping in the air and bitching really loud because it hurts. All right? That's, that is how we have beneficial discussion and beneficial debate. And if we can't get to counter-argument refutation or the central point being refuted, then we cannot have anything approaching an effective debate. And when you can have an effective debate with people, you do not get angry, you get logical. And this process leads you to that. It doesn't entrench you, it empowers you in your positions. All right? Um, and then you have to ask yourself another, check, check your gut question. After all of this shit, you have to stand back from everything you think you know and say, how much of my bias is at play here? Like, is the position I'm at now almost identical to the position I began with? And if so, did I really tick all the boxes along the way, or did I let confirmation bias take me to the position I had already predetermined for myself? And if you feel like a lot of your bias is at play, then you have to go through the process again until you feel that you've gotten there without bias leading you there. And then when we've done all of that, now we have to define for ourselves, do I know that this is true or do I believe that this is true? Have I reached a point where I'm willing to make what we can only call a leap of faith, 
and I'll stay entrenched in a leap of faith until you can prove me wrong? Or have I arrived at a point that I know is bulletproof fact? Bulletproof fact would be, there's a fire there, and if I stick my hand in it, it will burn the shit out of my hand. I'm going to make a concrete decision that I am not sticking my hand in that fire. A belief would be, I'll use an issue that I have a belief in. We should have no further gun control laws in America. I believe that, and I've done this process on that question. However, I don't absolutely, positively, 100% know that that is the best decision. It is the best decision that I can come to based on this process. So at some point, I have to realize that is my opinion. That is not a fact. That is my opinion. I believe it is a very well-reasoned opinion backed with lots of facts and lots of evidence, but it is still a point that I have settled on as an opinion. And throwing talking points at it, or how many people Stalin killed, doesn't prove my opinion. It supports my opinion. And most people are uncomfortable admitting that, to admit that they are agnostic on the issue. So we think of agnostic means, well, there might be a God and there might not be a God. I don't really know. That's not what agnostic means. You either believe in God or you don't believe in God, and you either are smart enough to know that you're agnostic, in other words, you can't have knowledge, and therefore you have faith one way or the other, or you claim to be gnostic where you know that which cannot be known. Most of the decisions that we make, by the time we get to the end of it, you are not going to have full knowledge. You're going to have as much knowledge as is possible in the situation to make the best decision you can based on your opinion that is backed by the facts and the logical process behind them. And that makes you able to adapt when new information comes in, either to refute it or to adapt it and adjust accordingly. Otherwise, you're under the control of whoever moves the information around. Whether you oppose it or agree with it doesn't matter because, remember, it's a dichotomy, stupid. And as long as you're on one side of it, they don't give a shit. They don't give a shit. Their goal is to have us as close to a 50-50 split as possible on every major issue or decision in this country and in the world, in fact, because then all they have to do is just move a few people from this side to that side whenever they want to accomplish something. If you had people with tremendous diversity in opinion and everybody working toward actual solution and engaging in constructive debate, they wouldn't be in charge of shit. We would. See? And I'll tell you what, those of you that master this process, you'll realize, in the words of Robert Anton Wilson, you are the power elite. You are in control. And no matter how hard they try to control you, you are outsmarting them and when everybody's bitching about it, it would only be better if they were in charge. You know they're really in charge, and you know that you're really in charge, and you live your own life in your own world somewhat divorced from their bullshit. That's what I'm trying to teach you. Next, the knowledge versus belief. What if anything would change my mind on this thing? Is there anything that anybody could ever say in any way, shape, or form that would change the opinion that I have on this? And if the answer is no, I really hope you're dealing with a fact first in an opinion. Now, I, there's a lot of those that I would answer of, with, 
I don't believe there is. But there might be. But there might be. Not even sure what it would be. But if 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 you, if you believe something, you say, well, if, if God himself showed up and went, hey, I'm God, and you're wrong, you'd still go, no, I'm not. You haven't really gone through this process right. You haven't gone through this process right, okay? Um, and the next is, is this something I was trained to believe or a decision that I made? That's your final gut check. Including something that you went through this whole process with and you believe at the end, I've, I've finally made this decision. I'm finally right about this decision. I'm finally comfortable in this decision. If you go back and say, but you know what, in the end, I was trained to believe this, it might be worth going through the whole thing again. So my final thoughts on this. This seems like very laborious. It seems very difficult. It seems like it's, it's something that would take a lot of time. But not if you make it a habit. And you can even change my questions and make your own questions. As long as you develop a process that keeps the heart of this decision-making process, what will happen is when something comes up, you'll start doing it. You'll just start doing it. I mean, the first thing is most shit won't get past the first three. They won't. You'll say, well, is this really important to me? No. I don't give a shit. Done. Now your mind can do all the other important shit in your life. Or you'll say, yeah, it is. Well, how, did I, how did I find out about this? Huh. That's going to make you think a lot of different things. When you, when you really think about, well, where did this come from? You're going to go back, you're going to go back and re-examine. Is this really important to me? I said it was, but since I know where it came from, and I didn't go find it myself. Can I actually do anything about this? Will my actions or my outrage accomplish anything? If it, if it can't get through those three, you spend your time and your effort on the things that actually you can influence. This is back to the just the basic old, you know, your sphere of influence or your circle of influence and your circle of knowledge or your circle of concern, right? There's a whole shitload of things that concern me. But, man, I'm going to spend most of my time and I'm going to strive to spend all of my time on the things that I actually have influence over. And then the rest of the stuff just makes you make good decisions within that smaller circle. That's what this is really all about. And I know it sounds somewhat extreme or, or what have you to claim this, but these are dangerous words. These are dangerous actions. These are dangerous thoughts. This might be the most dangerous thing to the people in power that you could ever teach anybody. And here's the beauty of it. You don't have to convince them of anything that you believe as being true to teach them this. It is okay for a person to go through this process and, and every single time arrive at the exact opposite decision that you had. It's okay. Because in the end, most people will come to very similar conclusions over time. And at least we'll have this concept of the experiments of liberty going on individually, even if the state wants nothing to do with it. Where people will be not just proposing solutions, but taking action with solutions. Because they're going to come to a whole bunch of shit where I think this is a good solution. I'm going to tell people about it. No one wants to do it. Well, screw it. I'll go do it myself, or I can't do that one. I'll go find one that I can do. 
And, and, and that undermines the power elite at a level that is difficult to even comprehend. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you did, one of the ways you can help support our show is really, really easy. And that's just to do your online shopping through tspaz.com. When you've gone through this process, you're like, I'm going to buy this thing? Go buy it at tspaz.com because you were going to do it anyway and you support us and there's no money out of your pocket that you weren't going to spend anyway because it doesn't cost any more to go to tspaz. What you'll see there is a whole bunch of reviews that we do for products on Amazon and a link where you can just get on over to Amazon, see their deals of the day, and shop for anything you want. All right, And today's product is one that I made a very informed decision about. It's the Wall, W-A-H-L, Senior Professional Clippers. This is something my barber uses. But here's how I came to this. Like, Here's my source of information, a professional. So I was getting my hair cut right before we went on vacation because about once every three months I get my hair cut. It's about the point where Dorothy will say something like this. Jack, what? Jack, what? Jack, you look like that guy they put on, on the news about twice a year. What guy? I know what she's saying, right? So The guy that ran out in the woods that's hiding from everybody in the middle of the mountain. And I'm like, I'm a survival guy. That's what I'm supposed to look like. She's like, no, you're not. You live in, you know, <laughs> I want, I want my husband to look good when we go out or whatever. And, and I, I tease her with it and, I, and I'll break down and go get my hair cut and I'll trim my beard up and all. So that had happened, you know, and we we're going on vacation. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm overplaying a little bit. I, I like to look good for my wife. So as good as I can anyway. So I, I go to my barber and I have her trimming my beard up and everything for me. And I'm lamenting the fact that my, my, my latest beard trimmer has, has crapped the bed again. And uh, I've been through like three and five years, and I don't trim my beard very often, obviously. And she goes, get one of these. And she hands me this, you know, these clippers she's using on my hair and my beard. And it's like I could beat somebody to death with this heavy-duty thing. And I'm like, really? She goes, yeah, like, you know, you can get this particular one, and it will, you know, I, I, we use them every day. You know, all day long. I work six days. She's like, work six days a week. And I've never seen one break. And we use it more in a year than you'll use it in your life. I'm like, well, and I'm looking at this professional quality thing. And I'm like, so what are these, like three, four hundred bucks? She goes, oh, like eighty, ninety dollars, something like that. She's like, get this eighty five oh one. It'll have all the attachments you'll use and none of the crap you won't know what to do with. And uh, so I go home and I, I check out Amazon. And this thing, you know, it's, it was eighty six bucks. So I ordered it. comes with all these different size attachments to control how long your hairs are. And I shave the beard with it. And, man, this thing just goes through like butter. And, man, is it heavy duty. And if you have somebody in your home you're comfortable with doing haircuts, this is what you want. This is what professional barbers use for 80, 86 bucks. I will go to my barber when I get my hair cut. I, I love my wife. I don't trust her to cut my hair. I'm like, man, it does a good job on the beard. And I just got tired of buying another product for 50 to 60 bucks when I could buy one for 80 and not have to buy it ever again. So it's called the Wall Senior 8501 Professional Clippers. The next time you're in the market for something to cut hair or trim beards or whatever it is, check this thing out. Put it through your decision-making process we talked about today. And I'm pretty comfortable you're going to come down with it because – What was the source of my information? A person who's a professional that uses this tool every single day who made no money to sell it to me, so she has no agenda. That's, that's making a good decision. Anyway, Wall Senior 8501 Professional Clippers. That brings us to our song of the day. And once again, John Adam hits a home run with uh, picking a song. The song is called Myself at Last by Graham Nash. Now, who's Graham Nash? Um, 
A lot of you might be like, I don't know Graham Nash. Graham Nash is part of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, right? Crosby, Stills, Nash, and then it was Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, right? So Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Graham Nash. This is actually a new song. It came out in 2016, and it's called, again, Myself at Last. And uh, here's what it says on Song Facts about it. Graham Nash tackles aging in this track. He told Uncut the lyrics are, What you'll think about, it's me, laid bare, finally, com finally comfortable with being who I am. Which is a big part of what I expected when I heard the title of the song, because I'd never heard this song before. But it's also some lamentation about being old and not being able to go back. Let me give you some of the lyrics here and talk about how they fit in with today. Light is slowly fading, and the night comes on so fast. That's metaphorical, folks. That's not the actual night. That's the night that is the human lifetime. Being born in the dawn and dying in a stroke of midnight. So night comes on so fast. I'm drowning in my dreams. It's so hard to fight the past. When all is said and done, it's so hard to count the cost. When I'm rolling down this lonesome road to lose myself at last. And the day that breaks before me may never be surpassed. And the question haunting me is my future just my past so I'm screaming at the universe just enough to make her laugh and I'm rolling down this lonesome road to lose myself at last and with everything I've ever done well I've tried to be my best but everyone I've ever known has been some kind of test when everything is said and done it's so hard to find what's lost. I'm rolling down this lonesome road to lose myself at last. My dreams are only memories, but they're all gone by so fast. I was drifting on an ocean blue like a ship without a mast. And then you came and rescued me, and you saved my soul at last. From rolling down this lonesome road to find myself at last... I'm rolling down this lonesome road, and I found myself at last. I found myself at last. So this is lamenting age, but it's also being at peace with it. And let me tell you how you are at peace when you realize you're closer to the end of your life than its beginning. When you can look back and say that what I did mattered. That the things that I gave my dash to. That little dash, they'll stick between the day you were born and the day you die on your tombstone or your, your plaque or wherever it is, or just your obituary in the paper. When you gave that dash to things that mattered, to things that made life better for somebody or somebody's, when the world is just a little bit better for you having been a part of it, then you can find yourself at the end of that race And be at peace with who you are. And in fitting with today's show, if you spend most of your life upset about, arguing about, and fighting things that you have no control over and no influence over, and believing things based on emotion instead of facts and logic, and contributing to the argument instead of the solution, it's a hard thing to find yourself near the end of that race, and be at peace with who you are. But if you can look back and really say, 
the world is a little bit better because I was in it. There are people who have a little bit more because I helped them. There are people that will do things so that others will have more because I helped them. I have done the best that I could with what I had. I didn't make excuses. Then in the end, you can find yourself and be at peace with who you are. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. slowly fading And the night comes on so fast Drowning in my dreams It's so hard to fight the past Lonesome road